we will be singing resurrection hymns next Sunday as well. Two Sundays of singing these great Easter hymns. Now on this Easter Sunday morning, I ask that you turn in your copy of God's Word to John's Gospel, chapter 11. Please bow with me in prayer. We are grateful, Father, that you have given to us your word, that you have not left us to our own devices and to the insanity of attempting to live without this word that you have given to us, but that you have opened the hearts of your people to receive this word as it truly is the word of God and to believe and know your promises that are found here all the way unto our heavenly home and the eternal state. But Father, there undoubtedly are those here with us today who are strangers to the Lord Jesus, who do not know him. And as your people feast upon this gospel and grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ, as we worship our risen King, we pray that others who have never known you and do not worship you would come to know the Lord Jesus this morning. Will you hear our prayer? We know you will, for it is offered in union with your Son and through his mediation. In the name of Christ, our risen Lord, we pray. Amen. Please stand with your copy of God's Word, John chapter 11, beginning with the first verse. This is the Word of God. Now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you are going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. 
So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus! Come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. People of God, the book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus came to destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. It is slavery to be fearful in the face of death, but the person who does not know Jesus Christ is a fool not to be afraid. Now this is Easter Sunday. We stress the reality of the resurrection of Jesus from the tomb bodily. The New Testament teaches us that in so doing, he destroyed the work of the evil one. And you, if you know him, 
you need never fear death again. Let us see how Jesus came to destroy death itself by turning to this passage this morning. And will you see, first of all, with me, Jesus is in sovereign control of life, death, and all circumstances. A special friendship Jesus had with Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. Mary had anointed Jesus. We are told that he loved not only the sisters, but Lazarus twice in verses 3 and 5. Lazarus became very seriously ill, and an urgent message was sent. Verse 3, the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. They longed for the presence of the one who loved them, and he does not come. Are you ever perplexed by the Lord's delays? Do you believe that his delays are sometimes because he loves you? When life unravels or death occurs, do you believe that despite appearances, Jesus is in control? Jesus is not in haste. Why was he not in haste? Because everything is under his sovereign control. Because he knew, according to verse 4, that the delay would bring glory to God. And because in verses 11 through 15, he tells us that he intended to elicit faith from his disciples. This turns our way of thinking on its head. We would think, well, Lazarus, the one he loves, is ill. He wants to get there, of course, so that he can keep him from dying. Jesus loves him, and because he loves him, he does not come, because God's glory is the great issue here. The Lord's timing, take comfort from from this, the Lord's timing is perfect. Yes, he is in sovereign and complete control. It all may be perplexing to us, but the Lord's plan is good, loving, and perfect. In it, the Lord plans to exalt himself. There is no uncertainty to God, and there are no mistakes in his economy. And so here, so also in your lives, believers. But then as we move on in this wonderful text, we also see that Jesus is king over death. Jesus is king over death. And we see it in two ways. First of all, because he is the master of his own life. Notice how he puts it in these almost perplexing words in verses 7 and 8. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just seeking to stone you, and you are going there again? Read on. Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. What Jesus is saying here is that he will fulfill the twelve hours of his life. He's in complete control. He has just in the tenth chapter of John's gospel said that no one takes his life from him, but he gives his life freely. He's going to the cross. He will not miss the cross. The cross is predetermined. It is planned for the redemption and salvation of sinners like us who are here this morning. And so he's in complete mastery of his own life. But also, we see that he is king over death because he proclaims himself to be the resurrection. He arrives, Lazarus has been entombed for four days, perhaps reflecting the Jewish idea that the spirit of a dead person would hover over the grave for three days. Lazarus was dead, really dead. 
many Jews gathered to comfort the family. Martha came to meet Jesus. We see her in a mixture of grief and faith in verses 21 and 22. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And then in verse 23, we see what New Testament scholar D.A. Carson calls a masterpiece of planned ambiguity. Verse 23 Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And I am saying, as we find in John's gospel, Jesus acknowledging himself to be Jehovah incarnate. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate. I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. I am the living God. And he says to Martha in this passage essentially this, that in the resurrection the believer will come to life though he dies, but also the believer already enjoys presently resurrection life. The future of the Christian stretches out and it is bright, eternal life. The text teaches us about our future. Jesus is the source of life. He is the author of life. And if you die as a believer in Christ, if you die, if you believe, you will live and never die. Do you believe this? Is the question that he asks of us this morning. Martha can answer firmly, yes. Can you? Can you answer, yes, I believe in him, I trust in him, I know that this is true. Eternal life and resurrection as an essential of that eternal life is brought to sinners by Christ, not only in the future, but now in the present. Look below the surface of death and suffering. Life triumphs over and even through death. In Hebrews 2, as we pointed out, we are told that Christ came, that through death he might destroy the one who had the power of death, that is the devil. Have you ever contemplated that Jesus Christ overcame the adversary with his own weapon. The weapon of the devil is to keep us in fear of death. It is through the temptation of the devil that sin enters the world and death through sin. Jesus comes into this world and overcomes the adversary through his own weapon, death, in order to give us life. One of the old divines wrote so beautifully, By the atoning sacrifice which he offered on the cross, he has changed entirely the aspect of death to all believers, making it to be no longer the penalty of sin and the gate to hell, but the safe entrance to everlasting blessedness in his heavenly kingdom, turning for his redeemed ones the curse into a blessing and giving them cause to say with his apostle, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus now asks for Mary, who had remained in the house. 
She quietly leaves the house to meet him and is followed by those who have gathered to join the family to grieve. They think she's going to the tomb in order that she might mourn and grieve before the face of the tomb again. And when she meets Jesus, it is an emotional meeting. And she greets Jesus with the same words as did Martha. You read them in verse 32. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. She does not add what Martha added about the knowledge of the resurrection, but nonetheless, she greets Jesus with virtually the same words. And then something remarkable happens to show us something wonderful about Jesus and the third thing of our text. Jesus is the supreme enemy of sin and its consequences. Jesus is the supreme enemy of sin and sin's consequences. Verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Now this is an under-translated verse, I am convinced. Life stands in the midst of death, mourners wail in agony, and Jesus becomes angry. In verse 33, the verb that is used here is a verb, the first verb means to be moved with anger. The text could well be translated, he was deeply angered and noticeably distressed. So Jesus comes to the tomb with Mary, looks upon the scene, and he is not simply deeply moved, but he is angry, and he is deeply and noticeably distressed. Because he is life, he is opposed to death. He stands staunchly as its enemy, and he is wrathful against all the miseries of mankind which are the result of man's sinful rebellion. Death, which is the result of Adam's sin. And he weeps. Jesus wept. Verse 35. Now pause to think of this. Who is this? This is the second person of the Trinity who has assumed real and genuine human nature. This is the one who spoke and the worlds came into being, who sustains the universe by the word of his power. And he stands before the tomb and he weeps. Do you ever weep? Sure you do. I remember reading something that Oz Guinness wrote years ago in one of his books. He said, there are two things that human beings cannot gaze at directly without going mad. The glory of God and the darkness of human evil. Now here is the glory of God incarnate. Standing before death. Human misery. The darkness of human evil. And I would add that only through the mediator can we see both. Stand in awe. The creator of heaven and earth comes to the grave of a friend and weeps with compassion and inward rage. This is no sign of weakness. Rather, this is the sign 
of omnipotent compassion. What Jesus was then, he now still is. The Lord came, let us remember, the Lord came and shared our sorrows. But it doesn't stop there. For we see, fourthly, that Jesus is our hope. Now, what Jesus does at this point is essentially to turn the entire scene into a a visual parable. He offers a public prayer in order to draw those who are there into fellowship with the Father through him. And then Jesus not only rages inwardly about sin and death and corruption, he is able to do something about it. And so in verses 43 and 44... When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice. Now, why a loud voice? Was it necessary? No. For the same reason that he prayed publicly that others might hear, he wants all to hear that he is the source of life, that he is the resurrection of the, and life. And so he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Obviously, the same power that called him out of the tomb enabled him to come to the entrance of the tomb so that he might then be unbound. The old divines, some of them used to say that it's a good thing that Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth, because if he had simply said, come forth, the entire cemetery would have been emptied. Well, he certainly could have intended Lazarus without using Lazarus' name, but the point is well taken. He is the Lord of life, the resurrection and the life. He sets over against death the power of his word. He shows himself to be the Lord of life. And imagine the amazement as the Son of God calls Lazarus out of the tomb and Lazarus comes out of the tomb. So if this is, in a certain sense, an enacted parable, it points beyond itself to something even greater. It is a sign of things which are even more remarkable and wonderful. To what does the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead point? Well, let's fast forward on this Easter morning to the empty tomb. The raising of Lazarus was not a permanent resurrection. It was a resuscitation to life. It was a sign, and signs point to something. To what does this sign point? It points to three resurrection realities. Jesus standing before the tomb and calling forth Lazarus points, first of all, to his own bodily resurrection from the dead. Jesus can raise Lazarus because he is the resurrection and the life. Now, of course, this text leads to the cross. In verses 45 to the end of the chapter, we see how, especially after the raising of Lazarus, the Jews are even more determined that Jesus Christ would be substituted for them so that they would not run into trouble with Rome. After the cross, there is the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, and then there are resurrection appearances. One notable feature in John's gospel is the emphasis upon the senses. So, for example, Jesus shows to doubting Thomas his wounds, 
And Thomas cannot but cry out, my Lord and my God. So when we on our Sundays recite the creed together, the third day he rose again from the dead, this is solid history. Let me be plain about what we are not saying. We are not saying that Jesus rose in spirit only. We are not saying that he rises only when we hear the story in our hearts. No. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Jesus Christ rose bodily from the tomb. The same body that was placed in the tomb was raised by the power of God from the tomb. That's why the resurrection of Lazarus. It was a sign of something far greater. Jesus himself would rise. He rose. He is the resurrection and the life. It was impossible for death to keep him. And then, secondly, the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead, pointing not only to the resurrection of Jesus but also points to our present participation as believers in resurrection life. Think, for example, of Ephesians, the second chapter, in which we are told that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were dead. We were lifeless. We did not know God. We did not want God. Indeed, the scriptures tell us that it was an act of death of hatred against the God who is. But... Christ has come, and in him, we are told in Ephesians 2, we have been raised through his resurrection already within our souls. Jesus himself says in this very gospel in John 5, 25, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Paul says in Romans 6, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. We have fellowship with God through the risen Christ now. And that's why I know as a minister of the gospel that I can preach the gospel to unbelievers. I myself was an unbeliever once, dead in my trespasses and sins, knew nothing of the risen Christ. I can preach this gospel in a spiritual cemetery, but that God is capable on even a Sunday morning such as this to speak through the Holy Spirit to that dead heart his word, and to raise you to life in union with Jesus Christ. But it doesn't stop there. Jesus would be raised from the dead. We are spiritually risen from our spiritual deadness. But also, believer, unless you are alive when Jesus comes as a believer, every one of us will die and our bodies will be raised on the last day after the pattern of his own resurrection body. 1 Corinthians 15, 20, But in fact, Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. That word firstfruits means that our future resurrection has already begun in Jesus' resurrection from the dead. 
And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we are told that when we die, it is called sleep because sleeping people wake up. The soul doesn't sleep. The soul is in the presence of God, but the body, as it were, sleeps because sleeping people wake up. And 1 Thessalonians 4 tells us that not only are our souls in union with Jesus, but our bodies are in union with Jesus. He died not only for your soul, he died for your body. He was raised not only for your spirit, he was raised for your body. So the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise. That's the promise that is given to us. And it is foreseen, foreshadowed in the resurrection of Lazarus in John 11. Imagine that day. The Savior, the risen Savior, the exalted, ascended Lord will come again. And moss-covered graves will give up their dead. Cathedral graves will open, and the sea will give up those entombed in the depths. Fathers and mothers and children will be reunited, and we will have resurrection bodies. We will be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Will you take comfort from this this morning? Will you take comfort from this at the graves of our family members and Christian friends. A.T. Robertson was a truly great scholar of the Greek New Testament, and his dear young daughter, Charlotte, was taken from his family unexpectedly by death. It was a shocking and quick thing. He was stunned beyond words, his biographer tells us. He walked about the house helplessly, with his open Greek testament in his hand, reading the story of the raising of Jairus' daughter. Grief-stricken, he said to his weeping friends, he raised Jairus' daughter, why not mine? He raised Jairus' daughter, why not mine? And he immersed himself in the New Testament text. But even though A.T. Robertson grieved, Dr. Robertson knew amidst his grief that his dear daughter was with Jesus and that the day is certain that she will be raised in a glorified body after the pattern of Jesus' own body when Jesus comes again. Now I ask you, will you take comfort from that on this Easter morning? Will you? So you see the text about the resurrection of Lazarus is really all about Jesus, not Lazarus. He postponed coming in order that God would be glorified by raising Lazarus from the dead. He postponed coming in order that through grief, his great salvation might be seen. He postponed coming in order that others sitting here long after his resurrection from the dead might believe in his name. And that is why it is impossible for the grave to hold him. 
I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And the proclamation of the risen Lord elicits two responses. Always, faith or antagonism. Either you believe. Now, you are called to faith this morning. You are called to believe in the risen Lord. You are called to know that the Bible reveals this, that it's true, that it's historical fact, that life is meaningless without it, that the only hope that you have for understanding what life is all about is to begin with Jesus, who is the risen Lord. You are called to believe in him and to apply that faith to every area of life, to know that all of life is under the lordship of Jesus Christ raised from the dead. It calls you to faith. The other response is antagonism. Either you will believe or your heart will rebel against this. You will say it's foolish. You will say it's not for me. You will say it can't be true. You will say it doesn't apply to me, but applies to others. All kinds of excuses, but you will be antagonistic to this good news that is preached. So the gospel always is either a savor of life unto life or of death unto death. There are always two responses, faith or antagonism. But never, never is there a third response of neutrality. You cannot be neutral before the proclamation of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Either you believe him or you are antagonistic, but you are never neutral. You cannot walk out of this room today saying, well, I'm just neutral about all of this. You are one or you are the other. Christian, in light of these truths that we have seen this morning, Let us stop living as if we were on the other side of Good Friday and on the other side of the empty tomb. Stop living as if the resurrection of Jesus never took place. Let your heart be smitten with the wonder, the awe, the reality of Christ rising from the dead. There is no room for despondency. There is no room for gloom. In the midst of our troubles, in the midst of this fallen world, We proclaim with Job, I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand in the latter day upon the earth. And though the worms destroy this body, yet with my flesh shall I see God. And God's people said, Amen.